Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. This week, we had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Peter Brennan. Dr. Brennan is an oral maxillofacial surgeon in Portsmouth, England. A tremendously accomplished academic, Dr. Brennan has a keen interest in human factors in surgery. In addition, he is the co-editor of the Gray's Surgical Anatomy textbook. We highly recommend checking out the textbook, as well as the links to Dr. Brennan's prolific work on human factors in surgery. And as always, those links are in the show notes. Can you tell us where you grew up and what your training pathway looked like? Yeah, well, th- well thanks very much, um, Chad. And please, please call me Peter. You know, we, t- we talk about low ingredients. We might talk about that a little bit later. So um, um, it's Peter, please. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was born in the south uh, east of England and um, and spent um, spent 18 years there. And then I went uh, I went to dental school first and then to medical school. Uh, in London, um, and subsequently did my surgical rotation up in up in Cambridge, which was a lovely, uh, a lovely, lovely city. Um, and then came down to the South Coast uh, and did my specialty training uh, for five or six years, um, and stayed here ever since. Really, so it's 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 a lovely part of the UK. It's uh, lots of sun. We see we see lots of skin cancer down here. Um, yeah, lovely part of the world. So the real question is, what football team do you support? Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm not. I'm not going to answer that because whatever I say is going to be wrong to so, to some of your listeners. So, so I'm going to keep silent on that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Uh, but se- why, but why several, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, sev- uh, several. There's some. There's some fantastic teams, isn't there? Really, and uh, um, you know, it's they cut. They kind of do the rounds, don't they? So um, you know, go in and out of favour and things. But but I'm going to keep quiet on it. I'm not smart, say. smart, wise decision. Well, we really wanted to talk to you about. Uh, a, a lot of the work that you've done around human factors, I mean, you've done t- so much work in a, in a variety of different things, but, uh, you know, it seems like human factors uh, in the surgical environment have really become a, a passion of yours. Yeah. Um, and you, you recently did a PhD, which is kind of amazing to think about as someone who's, you know, well into their career to go back and do that. So clearly this <laughs> is like a, a passion of yours. So can you yeah. talk to us about what, what are human factors exactly? Yeah, so... Um um, I guess I guess the clue's probably in the name, isn't it? Really, human. So, you know, as humans, we uh, uh, we make we make lots of errors on a kind of daily basis. So, I think I think for me, human factors is uh, yes, it's a science, but it but it's also applying common sense when we when we come to work, um, and it's looking at the factors that in uh, that affect our our individual performance. Um, it's uh, it's looking at the factors that that affect our relationship and the way we work within within teams because of course in surgery we all, we all work as part of a team so it's um, it's effective communication uh, it's lowering hierarchy it's situational awareness um, it's uh, it's all it's all of those factors really coming into play and I suppose finally um, the ergonomics side of things so how so how we interact with uh, with equipment and things that we we use in medical technology technology it's funny it's almost like you're describing everything outside everything that really matters that's generally not found in a textbook 
Yeah, yeah. So it's um, I mean, a lot a lot of what I've said. I mean, you met you mentioned about my PhD, and thanks for that. Uh, it's 270, 75 pages long, uh, and actually the. Th- the theme flowing through most of it is actually common sense application. And, uh, you know, the number of times uh, when, we, when we come to work or we're in the operating room and we work for seven or eight hours nonstop uh, and, we, and we don't stop to take a break. Um, now, we, were, um, we wouldn't do that, you know, in, um, in normal day life. I mean, you, you wouldn't drive from Vancouver to, uh, to Calgary nonstop, would you? You would, you would stop it. Uh, um, a number of points and have a comfort break, have something to eat and drink. Um, but historically, sur- surgeons have worked for seven, eight, nine, ten hours nonstop, and that and that's not physiologically correct. Um, plus, the effect it has uh, on the morale of the team, tiredness, fatigue, all those things come into play. So, uh, so uh, really important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we're we're obsessed on the podcast about kind of thinking about all the the sort of non-technical side of surgery and how to optimize that and and become better surgeons. You know, in your PhD, which I, I definitely had the pleasure of reading, um, you kind of talk initially about f- the four domains of human factors analysis, and, and you kind of go back to these human factors, these four domains, uh, again and again in a number of your uh, work and in a number of your papers. What are those yeah. four domains, and, and how do they pertain to the uh, operating room? Uh, that's an interesting interesting question. So. Um, I'm sure most of you have heard heard about the Swiss cheese model of error. So that's um, I think it's one one of the Swiss cheeses. Thing is called uh, Emmental that's got holes holes in the cheese. And um, if you imagine slices of those cheese cut uh, and put on a skewer, and they're slowly rotating round, um, and every now and again all of those holes are going to line up, uh, and that's when you're going to get an error. And I mean for me most most error actually doesn't. Um, it's not the fault of one particular person. It's a whole string of things that align together like those holes in the cheese to cause the error. So um, those four factors you mentioned, the first one is organizational uh, influences. So um, so when we go to work, pressures, pressures put upon us by, by our hospital, putting an extra patient onto the operating list by the management, for example, um, putting, putting a bit of pressure or stress on us. That's, um, that's the first layer. Um, you've then got uh, so-called unsafe supervision um, and that uh, is a whole host of things including um, uh, you know not not supervising the rest of the team uh, and that's not just your trainees or your more or your mute um, or your mu- sorry more junior doctors that's uh, other members of the team that's the nursing staff the the anesthesiologists how you how you work together uh, not engaging with checklists for example that's another example of unsafe supervision um, and then you've got the area um, so-called preconditions to unsafe act and that's the area where, where I've spent the last seven or eight years um, focusing on and they're the human factors that that you can actually actively address and actually block um, that hole in the ch- a hole in the Swiss cheese. So they're sort of individual factors, um, looking after ourselves, optimizing our performance, um, hydration, eating, um, uh, um, tiredness and fatigue, those type of things. Uh, and then the team factors that we that we started talking about, you know, situational awareness, ef- uh, effective communication, um, better briefing. Uh, and then finally, the fourth layer is is of course the error itself. So you you operate on the wrong side, or you or you cut a bile duct, or whatever it is. That's the final um, uh, line in the cheese. But uh, but so many of these errors are actually preventable. Although a lot of people have talked about the airline industry and 
and some of the disasters and the, the cockpit culture and hierarchy that tends to exist yeah. is probably probably in North America. Malcolm Gladwell really brought that to the the most folks initially. You've also talked a lot about comparisons, both positive and negative, uh, granular and not, between the airline industry and and the surgical industry, so to speak. I was wondering if you could frame that for our audience and give us some of yeah. your thoughts about those those topics. Yeah, of course, of course. I think um, I think it's one simple sentence. Uh, you cannot compare aviation and medicine or surgery. Period. Full stop. Um, what you can do is you can take lessons and human factors that. Uh, that are used and practiced by aviation, by the nuclear industry, by rail, um, by um, air traffic services, um, and you can apply those in into the operating room. Um, and that's what I do. So uh, I never compare aviation um, to surgery at all. Um, but actually, you know, think, things like effective communication, you know, and the and the way the pilots actually communicate um, with air traffic in a in a very clear way. It's unambiguous. Um, there's no there's no margin of error um, in terms of hierarchy. You know, in terms of taking those breaks. Uh, uh, all the th- all the things I talk about, but I'm never I'm, I'm never sort of uh, comparing directly uh, aviation with healthcare. I think that's very fair kind of way of framing it. In that you're not trying to say that they're the same, but that we definitely can can learn things just like we can learn things from athletes or the military or yeah. what, any any yeah. any number of different organizations. I do want to zero in on, on something that you've talked about in your PhD as well as in other things that you've written about kind of flattening the hierarchy. Um, yes. And, and, you know, Dr. Ball mentioned uh, Malcolm Gladwell and Malcolm Gladwell has this, you know, sort of amazing description in, in one of his books where he talks about how the Korean airlines improved their safety uh, outcomes when they actually asked their air, air, airline pilots to speak to each other in English in the cockpit. And that uh, effectively kind of reset some of the cultural uh, norms around hierarchy and who could speak to whom and who could challenge whom. And so, you know, it, it certainly lends credence to this idea that it, it's really a powerful thing to try and flatten the hierarchy in terms of safety. But is that really possible in an operating room? Like, you know, how, what does that even look like? You know, I, I, you know, I can see this scenario where a medical student comes in, you know, f- fresh on their clerkship rotation. Yep. They're fresh on their ward. They come into Dr. Ball's OR. He's doing a Whipple. And they say, well... Should you really be doing that? You know, yep. so yep. so how do you kind of, is it really realistic to even think about um, having a flat hierarchy in the operating room? Um, yeah, good question. Good question. So first and foremost, uh, there has to be a hierarchy, full stop. You know, there has to be um, uh, an, an overall attending, a consultant, as they're called in the UK, who is ultimately responsible um, for that patient. Um, but... You know the difficulty is is actually setting it so so the hierarchy is sufficiently shallow, so that so you're not then on a pedestal uh, that no one feels that they're they're able to actively challenge you. So um, we w- we would advocate, and we've published on this, um, and there's a nice uh, e- easy to read uh, short article in the British Medical Journal published a couple of years ago about empowering junior doctors to speak up. So I think I think first and foremost what 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 you as the team leader need to do is when you have your briefing, uh, you know, introduce everyone. Um, you know, you, you can call yourself by your first name, by uh, by Dr. Ball. It doesn't matter as long as you say to the team, look, if there's anything you're not happy about, if you want me to clarify, if there's anything you're not sure, please just speak up. 
uh, and you do that in a nice warm op open uh, way ra rather than with your arms folded you know 90% of communication is nonverbal um and the key is actually to do this um, without fear of retribution so um, so if that medical student has um, has a point or they want to say something actually i thought i thought it wasn't a whipple today it was it was something else um then you know, if of course it was a whiplash, you can say, well, yes, actually, the next the next patient's this or um, or that. So, but you but you're then not not shouting at that tra um, at that trainee or medical student. You're not you're not angry with them. You're giving them a nice calm response. Um, so they walk away not not feeling anxious that they that they've said something silly. And of course, they they may have said something that isn't particularly relevant, but you know, um, you've actually gone away and they've given them that experience that they can speak up. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, most um, most people don't need to speak up because because you're you're flying the aeroplane, you're you're the attending, you're in charge, you're, you know what you're doing. It's just that that rare situation when something just doesn't seem quite right for for the rest of the team. Uh, and if the team can speak up um, without fear, um, they will then do so. And they're, they're your eyes and ears as far as far as I'm concerned. You know, I, lo I love the way that you frame that environment. I think we can all see it li listening to you. We can visualize it. W would you agree that a lot of that really is um, sort of creating that environment? I, I mean, is incumbent upon whoever the quote unquote leader is in, in that room or in that environment, you know, knowing the first names of everybody, having them maybe call you by the first name in a culture like Canada, um, you know, interacting with the medical student, talking about their weekend, just sort of creating those relationships and that that environment that welcomes um, a commentary or questions or concerns as the as the day goes on is is uh, is an art in itself, probably. Absolutely correct. But um, and so and some people do, will feel uncomfortable either either calling uh, a senior colleague by, by their first name or the colleague doesn't want to be called by the first name. And that's absolutely fine. Um, but what's important is that you've 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 lowered that gradient to um, to a point where some where someone uh, can feel able to speak up if they need to. And of course, bear in mind that in in aviation, there, there were a number of uh, fatal um, air crashes going back to the 60s and 70s and even the 80s where um, you know there was a steep hierarchy uh, and, the, and the first officer felt unable to challenge so so this isn't going to happen overnight you know it's an evolving thing that's going to take many years to filter right through uh, healthcare around the world um, it's not an instant fix but all of us need to be do, doing our part um, and as it is in the UK it's it's um, it's spreading exponentially I mean um, I mean people uh, people are coming back and saying um, you know what you know we did we did the briefing uh, we've empowered the team the team feels so much happier now you know I'm getting uh, staff staff wanting to come and work in my theater rather than rather than wanting to go and work in Dr. Jones's theater for example um, you know so, so it's all about empowerment it's about happy teams morale and all the other things we we talk about as well Chad you know you mentioned right at the top that a lot of the things that we you talk about in human factors is is almost common sense right like you know if you're if you're if you're doing something for a long period of time it's it's nice to have um sleep and it's nice to have adequate nutrition and all these kinds of things but you know i i wonder again if if that is actually achievable for most people in most settings you know i, I think about the days when when i was a junior resident responsible for 80 plus patients in the hospital overnight 
running around, trying to get to the OR, trying to see patients in the emergency department, trying to stop doctor, you know, ne- oh, sorry, that never happens, but, you know, Whipple patients from <laughs> from <laughs> from, from yep. getting sick. Um, you know, and then for, for someone to s- suggest that, you know, I should get more sleep or I should, should, should be able to, you know, get more nutrition, it, it almost would feel defeating to me. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. so I'm wondering practically, what does that look like? And, and I know, I, you know, from following you on Twitter that you actually will take breaks during the, uh, a, a long OR. So can you talk about like, what does it practically look like to get better nutrition, better sleep, pay attention to those types of, of human factors? Okay. Okay. Let me let me just give you a couple of things to think about then. So so if you're if you're awake for more than eighteen hours, uh, your cognitive function uh, is the same um, as. Um, as being about three times, two to three times over the UK alcohol limit. Um, and I guess that's a, sim- a similar limit uh, in Canada. Um, so, and of course, this th- um, this creeps up on you slowly. So you don't even realize it's happening. Um, and people then say, well, you know, um, yes, I can perform at the, at the same standard. And of course, it's happening really slowly. So you, you don't even know it's happening. Um, I mean, if you take if you take hydration, for example, so if you lose one to three kilograms in body weight um, through perspiration because you're operating for seven, eight hours, uh, your cognitive function falls by 20 percent. Uh, again, this happens really slowly. You're not even aware it's happening, but your but your cognitive function falls by 20 percent. And there's lots of published papers around around that, both from the military and from others. So we so we've actually looked at. Um, taking breaks, maybe maybe every three to four hours. And, um, you know, it doesn't need to be a long break, maybe 15, 20 minutes. If it's safe to do so, if you're at um, a point in the surgery where you can stop, um, you know, walk away, uh, go and have a comfort break, um, have a drink, something to eat, um, little chat, take your mind off things. Um, and then when you go back in there, you've you've optimized your performance um, and you'll, you'll actually speed up and you'll actually catch that time up uh, in the majority of cases. So, um, you know, lots of colleagues have now have now been trying this and they come back and say, well, you know what, that that was a seven, eight hour procedure and I took 50 minute breaks and I've done it in in six and a half hours. And it's like, well, yes, because it's it's basic common sense. You know, you wouldn't drive for seven or eight hours nonstop. You you would stop and take a break. So we leave common sense at the front door of the hospital uh, on many occasions when we go to work. And I and I was exactly the same. I used to operate for um, eight, nine hours nonstop until my eyes were opened uh, to human factor some um, some years ago. Um, and having made the switch, uh, I'd never go back. And all of the team that we work with, you know, they they all now look forward to working with us because uh, because they know that, you know, if it's a nine hour operation, you know, we might take one or even two uh, rest breaks um, and catch up, uh, hydrate, have something to eat uh, and go back and carry on. It makes a massive difference. Well, you're giving us such great concepts to, to really contemplate and, and, and hopefully engage in our in our surgical practices. I'm curious, though. With, with these concepts, in, in particular, sleep uh, deprivation yes. or, or sleep yes. hygiene. And we, we've talked about that on the podcast with a couple of different wellness type folks as well. How do you account for or frame, you know, just genetic variability, you know, sleep gene, no sleep gene, um, and just the ability of, of some hyper performers to, to work incredibly um, long hours. And I don't necessarily mean, you know, a two hour case compared to an eight hour case, but just 
maybe even a day and a half uh, of call here, you know, just in, in these sort of the older school structures, because we all clearly see that in our colleagues, folks that really seem to do it with uh, um, uh, uh, sort of elegance and grace and other folks that really struggle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm, and I'm very much in that latter, in that latter camp, you know, if I, if, if I don't get uh, adequate sleep, I'm irritable the, fo the following day. I'm I'm tired, and I I look at those people with some envy, if I'm honest with you. Um, but you know there is there is a genetic um, variability, and but uh, I think the same the same principles will still apply that their performance will slowly be sliding. You know you cannot maintain that 100% performance for uh, 24, 36 hours. It is impossible, despite what they uh, might say or what you might seemingly think, you know, they, they are slowly deteriorating. Uh, and we would even say, you know, if um, if you're doing um, a long shift, for example, um, and yes, it is, or it can be very, very difficult to actually take a little bit of a break. But, you know, if it's, uh, um, you know, you need you need to put that oxygen mask on and look after yourself, you know, as they as they say on the, uh, on the flights, put your own mask on before helping others you you need to look after yourself so um we often say well um give the bleep maybe maybe to the sister on the ward if that if that's possible um go off and just and just take a 20 minute cat nap um 15 20 minutes you know that can make a massive massive difference um and i guess there's a difference as well between tiredness and fatigue so tiredness is a mm -hmm. is an acute um phase really so you know you, ha you haven't had a night's sleep that's uh, that's tired fatigue is cumulative and i guess that's something we're all beginning to feel now with the with the pandemic you know it it just creeps up on us um that's a much longer term uh, effect of course I was hoping we could switch gears for for the last part of it here. We're respectful of your time and talk about, you know, the editorship of Great Surgical Anatomy. I'm curious yeah. how you got involved with that textbook and if you could give us some of the historical context of of the text because it is so important. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, this this um, this for me. Whenever I think about this book, it uh, it put it puts a shiver a shiver down my spine, and it's, it's actually doing that even as I'm speaking now. And I can I can I can put hand on heart. That's uh, that's really honest. Um, I mean, basically, I've. Um, I've done some work with uh, with the editor editor of Grey's Anatomy uh, itself, Professor Susan Standring, and we've actually published various uh, anatomical variants that we that we found during surgery and what have you. Um, and I think about 2016, I think it was, I met her at the Royal College of Surgeons, and we were we were just talking about it. And uh, Grey's Anatomy itself is the most amazing reference book. It's um, you know, it's an enormous textbook, as you know, but it's not really a surgical book. You can you can pick up Gray's, read the whole of Gray's, and you go into the operating room, and you and you wouldn't know how to do um, an anterior resection, for example. Um, so we so we had this concept of of actually bringing it back to to Henry Gray's original um, original book, which was 1858. Um, and in fact, the book's called um, Anatomy Descriptive and Surgical, and it's very much a surgical anatomy text. And as I've said, over, over the years, Gray's itself has moved away from that and become a reference text of anatomy. Um, so we we contacted uh, the uh, publishers. They were they were really really keen to get to get involved. We we had to write a detailed proposal. Um, and so, and so we did all that. That then got approved, uh, uh, and then we we invited um, uh, a Canadian surgeon who 
who actually works in Vancouver called uh, Sam Wiseman, who I think had contacted uh, the publishers independently and said, oh, there's a ne- there's a need for this for this book. So so the book had been approved and we we brought him in. Um, and then just a question of, of course, have, having a name like Grey Surgical Anatomy, uh, uh, you know, we, we invited world world class surgeons uh, all over. And of course, as soon as you uh, send them an email and you say about the history and it will bring Henry Gray's book to the 21st century. People, people were, um, were absolutely delighted. Um, and we evolved a lot of, a lot of residents, a lot of, a lot of trainees. I think that's so important. That's empowering them, you know, making sure that the level is set correctly. Um, so a huge amount of undertaking. I think there were something like 10,000 emails that were, that were sent in the last year or so between us. Um, and I was really insistent that we that we have a uh, an opening chapter about human factors. Uh, so so before before you pick up that knife, you have to understand how error happens and ways to reduce uh, medical error in the in the OR. Um, and um, uh, and then the and then the most surreal moment, Chad, was um, I was at the Ed- Edinburgh College of Surgeons giving a talk about human factors, funnily enough, uh, in November 2019. Um, and I had the proof copy of the um, of the Gray's Surgical Anatomy. Um, all um, all the proofs were done were done online with PDFs and what have you. But they but they produced me a uh, a single PDF. Uh, sorry, a single hard copy of the. Um, of the book, um, and in the um, in the college library, there's an original uh, proof edition of the 1858 book by Henry Gray, where where he's made numerous uh, uh, numerous corrections in pencil and pen, uh, and to actually hold those two books together was, I think, probably the most surreal moment of my life, and. And to actually open the page on, um, in fact, we opened it on one of the head and neck pages, and there was the infratemporal fossa, uh, and to see the drawing that had that had been done by Henry Carter, and an operative surgical picture um, of uh, of a live operation that was there, and it, and it looked almost identical. It was like, wow, we've uh, we've just made 150 years of history here, and it's um, it's it's an immense honour. Um, honor and privilege to to help help contribute and and help the future generation of surgeons it's um honestly it's a real real surreal surreal experience and uh i can't wait to do the next edition really oh that's an amazing story you, you know it's it, the conceptual framework with which gray's uh, and and you have have styled the delivery and the communication of that information is interesting can you talk about that a little bit to the audience and and maybe why it's structured a little bit more different than traditional and anatomical books? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so, uh, so when you look at when you look at Gray's original book, um, uh, as I said, it's called Descriptive and Surgery. Uh, he uh, he talks about the surgical anatomy. So you know um, you could you can cut along this particular muscle and you're absolutely safe and you you um, you sort of veer off of it and then you're you're going to hit uh, a major artery or you're you're going to cut a nerve. And so and so that for me was the was the kind of lesson, if you like. It's like uh, we want to produce a book that you you can actually read, almost like a roadmap. You can actually read that. Um, yes, you can learn learn the anatomy as you go along, but it will um, it will give you the tools and the and the knowledge to safe um, uh, safely operate. And so we've used um, 
uh, we've used operative pictures uh, throughout the book, as you as you know. Uh, that's complemented uh, in certain situations with cadaveric materials such, such as the brain, when you when you can't have the whole um, the whole brain exposed or the brain cut in sagittal section and so forth. Um, and there's also a, a quite a lot of online videos as well. So I think there's about 60 or 70 uh, online videos, both of uh, surgical procedures uh, and cadaveric dissection. Uh, again, with surgeons talking talking um, the reader and the observer through uh, the relevant anatomy so they can safely perform, perform the operation. Um, and we've we've also included anatomical variants and things that you that you would see during surgery. Um, and then there's multiple choice questions as well to uh, um, enable you to to kind of think about that afterwards. And have and have you learnt um, have you learnt the chapter? So, I mean, there's uh, there's lots of bits missing. We could we could have written uh, a book three times the size, I guess, but it was it was written based on the curriculum uh, in the UK and um, and the US and Canada for uh, for surgical practice. Um, so you know, for example, it doesn't include uh, a huge amount uh, of obstetrics, of gynaecology, of eye surgery, for example. Um, you know, it's very much a, a book for. Uh, surgeons that would be sitting their surgical exams but um yeah yeah i can't wait to do the, se uh, the second edition and um expand upon it as well if we can uh, hope hopefully publishers are, hope hopefully the publishers will give us uh, a bit more space to um to include a lot more stuff <laughs> well I, I have no doubt they will it's a beautiful book and uh, i'd encourage all of our all of our listeners to buy it because it's uh, it's truly phenomenal and, and to your point it, maybe it makes me a little odd but um, I, it's the anatomical variants that I always find them the most interesting, whether I operate in that region or not. They're fantastic. The, oh, the last you. question, yeah, I know it's beautiful. The last question I wanted to ask you specifically, though, and and I can't comment obviously on the on the UK um, side of this because I would certainly be ignorant. But in Canada, in particular, and the US to some degree, there's been a, a sustained and considerable de-emphasis on anatomical teaching within medical schools. Um, and then, you know, you can imagine the downstream effects of that anecdotally that, that we see, you know, students are further behind when they hit residency, yes. a big portion of their first year, especially is just trying to understand anatomy that historically would have been, you know, stone cold, uh, clear to them from medical school. Yes. And then, you know, also thinking about maybe how that all, uh, it also plays into the long term practice of non surgeon um, uh, clinicians as well. I'm curious. Um, what it's like in the UK and, and what your thoughts are on that de-emphasis that we've seen over time here anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, if I'm honest with you, I think I think it's very sad that um, uh, cadaveric dissection se seems to be evaporating away. Um, I think, yes, there are there are a number of tools that could, that can be used. I mean, you can learn uh, radiological anatomy. You can you can have three um, D models, for example. You can uh, look at look at videos and on online material. Um, but but actually not um, not being able to have that that hands on, um, and it doesn't actually necessarily need to be you. Um, you doing the dissection, having having cadaveric material, so you can really appreciate those amazing structures and how they how they interact. Um, and I can tell you uh, as well with another hat on that uh, that I that I wear as um, um, so I used to be. Uh, uh, lead for the MRCS, the member of the Royal College of Surgeons exam uh, in the UK and Ireland. Um, and that's an exam, it's an entry exam to higher training. So um, residents will take that at about three or four years after 
uh, after medical qualification. Um, and then they enter uh, specialty training in um, uh, you know, general surgery or plastic surgery or what have you. Um, and so we've actually now, uh, we've got a huge amount of research published around that exam. Uh, and we have, we have another paper about to be published um, very, very soon uh, about medical school. Uh, and that predicts performance in the MRCS surgery exam. Uh, and there's a large anatomy component in that MRCS um, surgery exam, you know, basic sciences. Um, and it seems that the the students who go to the more modern uh, medical schools where there isn't any uh, cadaveric material, uh, they're not performing as well in that exam as those students who have been to the traditional medical schools. Um, so I think, I think you know, cadaveric exposure is really, really important. And I think, I think exposure, no matter what you end up doing, you know, as a physician, as a neurologist, you know, having, having some understanding of anatomy is really critical. Um, I mean, we had to learn a medical student. Uh, I always remember we had to learn the five layers of the foot, and uh, um, and I um, I had this really bad feeling because I'd, I'd already qualified in dentistry beforehand. So I had this really bad feeling when when I went to the Viva, I was going to get asked about the foot, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And it's like, tell me about the layers. Of... No, oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> so I, I'm actually not sure that 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 is actually relevant for for every single medical student to learn to learn all all of those five layers of the foot because come on you know unless um, unless you're going to be a foot and ankle surgeon do you really need to know that so mm -hmm. you know that but but having having a basic understanding of um, of neurology of um, of the dermatomes of the uh, where the heart valves are in relation to where to where you put your stethoscope where the where the lobes of the lung are you know when you're feeling an abdomen where where the um, you know the cross section? What's at L1? What's at T12? You know, I think I think that's really important. And sadly, it seems uh, a lot of um, a lot of that is going away. And um, um, in the UK, we're um, a lot of a lot of medical schools are taught um, are teaching more about um, empathy and communication skills and things. And that's really important as well. Don't you know? Don't get me wrong. That's really important. But it but it seems that that. That anatomy just um, does seem to be reducing, perhaps in the uh, in the undergraduate curriculum, um, and then of course then you um, then you become a surgeon and you're and you're like um, on a sea without without a without a chart. You know you have you haven't learned that anatomy, and so it's a very steep learning curve to uh, to try and learn the the anatomy for your for your board exams. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.